This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. <clears throat> Thanks, Scott. This morning, I'd like to begin the sermon uh, kind of in an odd way, describing one of the most troubled churches I know in the Scriptures. Uh, this church, first and foremost, had profound internal divisions. There was a partisan spirit, not because it was an election year, but the leaders of the church who were at best infants in the faith were in love with the wisdom of their age. They were self-vaunting and self-promoting, which led to a laity that radically identified itself with one of these leaders over another, which then led to a tremendous amount of internal boasting and pride. And this general problem led to confusion over the true nature of wisdom, which led the path, the church on a path of being antithetical to the gospel. Secondly, see, this church had a case of incest, where a man was with his father's wife. Now, the church did nothing, and this wasn't even an embarrassment to him. Again, as you look at this church in the scriptures, there's litigation between the various believers in the church. There was a poor theology that led to destructive behavior. For example, a few men in the church thought it was quite okay to go to the temple to frequent the temple prostitutes of a specific pagan god. There was confusion over marriage and divorce. There was an inability to solve internal problems because in that culture they kind of got themselves into stuff. And then they applied their superior wisdom to the problems they're encountering. And they, what they forgot to do was use the concept of self-sacrificing love as the value to help them discern what to do with these issues, like eating food sacrificed to idols. There's a subtle denial, and then which led to a blatant denial of Paul's apostolic authority. Some were participating in worship services of a pagan temple, so there's syncretism in the church. And then there's a general confusion between the relationship between men and women, which led to worship problems because there was abuses of how they took the Lord's Supper. They failed to understand the preeminence of God's love. They had an inordinate value of spiritual gifts. And they failed to see how the thing that was supposed to define the church among everything else that you could define yourself by was love. This led to a worship service that was unintelligible, and they lacked a proper order for worship service to give God glory. Now, some of you already figured out, I just described the church in Corinth. So, what does Paul do with this church? And this is some pretty hard and heavy stuff. The reports are bad. The internal leaders are crying out for help. The church is on the verge of walking away from the gospel, and they have no idea that they're about to do that. So, Paul employed, both for modern and ancient years, a very severe strategy 
He wrote a severe letter, and he sent his strongest lieutenant to deliver that letter and to clean up the mess. His goal, as we can see from this passage, was to grieve them. His aim was for them to experience sorrow. His ambition was for them to be hit with emotional pain. His purpose was for them to have deep regret. But why? That they may repent. That they may be changed deeply in their mind and heart and walk again in the grace and the truth and the love of Jesus. If you look at the text, verse 8, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that my letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you are grieved, but because you are grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. Paul did not enjoy the sorrow, the grief, the regret, the emotional pain he caused in his first letter to the church in Corinth. On the contrary, you can see from verse 8, he's filled with internal angst of having to do so. I wanted to do it, and I really didn't want to do it. Oh, I'm so glad it worked. He, his grief, his internal angst was matched by his euphoric relief and joy that his strategy had worked. They grieved not for sorrow's sake, but for repentance. See, now defining sorrow can be kind of a tricky thing. In its most simple terms, grief or sorrow is emotional pain. And there's different types of sorrow that we experience. For example, there's a sorrow you're supposed to feel when someone sins against you. Or, for example, there's the sorrow you're supposed to feel when you suffer a great loss. And the Bible actually speaks prolifically on these types of sorrow and how you're supposed to grieve these things and to take the time and space to do so properly. But this is not the type of sorrow Paul has in mind in this specific passage. He's inviting the church to experience appropriate sorrow, emotional pain for the sins that they commit. Now here's the grand passage of this problem presents for us. For most of us in this room, this feels like a foreign concept. We hate to grieve. We hate to feel sorrow. We hate to feel emotional pain. We hate it so much we avoid it like the plague. When we sin, we push it down. We ignore it. We excuse it. We defend it. We endorse it. We rationalize it. And if we can't do any of those things, we quickly state it, maybe confess it, and move on as fast as we possibly can. This hate for feeling emotional pain over sin is so bad that we typically avoid Conflict, reconciliation, and rebukes as regular activity in the Christian life. And then when someone in our life that we know that we care about confesses sin, we're so uncomfortable when they make things uncomfortable, expressing emotional pain, we work as fast as we can to get them off the hook and feel better about themselves. To complicate things, we're in a pain-averse culture. As a culture, we avoid pain, we push it down, we deny it, we ignore it. And when none of those strategies work, we self-medicate. And then we wonder, why do we rarely seem to change and experience the riches of God's grace? This morning, Paul is inviting us to embrace sorrow that we might embrace the beautiful love of Jesus. And this morning, we will embrace sorrow if we see three things from this passage. The purpose of sorrow, the product of sorrow, and the power for sorrow. The purpose of sorrow, the product of sorrow, and the power for sorrow. First, the purpose of sorrow. As you contemplate the tension you're feeling right now between needing to embrace sorrow, it's helpful to see the clearest thing that's in this passage. It has to say one thing. Godly sorrow produces repentance. Again, look at the text. As it is, I rejoice, not because you're grieved, because you're grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so you suffered no loss through us. Verse 10. 
For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Godly sorrow is the key for life-changing repentance. Godly sorrow is the prerequisite, the precursor, the ignition of repentance. The reason we engage in emotional pain over sin is that we might experience the transforming power of Jesus Christ and the power of his cross. Now here's a problem. We often choose an alternative grief, an alternative sorrow, a worldly sorrow that leads to death. Now what is worldly grief? Think about the last time you failed at anything spiritual, anything connected to your spirituality. Some of you, as you felt that great emotional pain at your failure, you responded with pride. You said to yourself, whether consciously or subconsciously, I am better than this. And what you're consciously or subconsciously telling yourself is you're great. You can do anything. You just need to apply yourself. You need to discipline yourself. You can accomplish anything. So you turn on yourself hoping that in the pain of your punishment of yourself, it will make you stronger and better the next time. That's worldly grief. Others responded to your failure with your spirituality, not with overt pride, but with despair. You said to yourself, I'm horrible, I'm worthless. You're consciously or subconsciously at this point telling yourself that you're defined by what you do. And because you failed, it means you have little worth, little value, little significance, and so you turn on yourself. And in the pain and anguish of you punishing yourself, you actually exercise the same pride as the first person, hoping that you'll change in your self-sufficiency, or you check out altogether in your hopelessness. Now, these pathways are very familiar to us, and we know what it leads to. It leads to internal death. But godly sorrow stands above these alternative pathways, and it leads us to God's grace. You see, in godly sorrow, we recognize that we're not stronger and better than the sin that consumes us. But we serve a king that is stronger and better. Who lives in us and loves to change us and renew us. And he invites us in our weakness to experience the strength. Not to boast in our capacities, but to rejoice and take pride in his capacities as the one who can do anything. In godly sorrow, we recognize that we're not worthless, that we have no value based on our accomplishments or lack of accomplishments, but we see that our activity does not define us. The only thing that defines us is the activity of Jesus, his perfect righteousness. Because he lived and died for us, Jesus was defined by our sin and was crushed for them so that we might be defined by his perfect, beautiful, gorgeous righteousness. In godly sorrow, we are free to emotionally engage our sin that ails us because we are forgiven and cherished and empowered by the king of the universe. So in Jesus, we can really grieve, feel real emotional pain over the sin that we commit each and every day. So let's apply this to a sin that almost all of us in the room struggle with so we can get a taste for how this might work in our lives. A few weeks ago, Ted preached a fantastic sermon that helped us all to see that we are guilty of defaulting into religion, or in a Luke 15 way, acting like older brothers, or in a New Testament way, acting like Pharisees, which is not the same as the gospel, and as we learned from the sermon, not safe as irreligion, but actually even more dangerous. As much as I don't want to admit it and want to say it, I want to say I'm better than this, but I'm guilty as charged. I'm religious. I have tendencies like the Pharisees in the New Testament. I often get my identity from what I do, what I know, 
what I think I am in very proud and self-reliant terms over who I really am in Christ. So what does it look for like, like us for us to feel godly sorrow for our religion? First, we must ask ourselves, how does the sin, being, how does the sin of being religious harm us? Well, think about it. For the first part, it makes us judgmental. Since we evaluate people by what they do and don't do, we love to zero in on ones who do not measure up to us and our standards, and we judge them. It makes us more self-reliant. We think we can knock out our spirituality on our own terms and efforts, and we focus in on the activities that we can, and so we miss that out on community, people coming into our lives and helping us to grow in grace, and so we miss out on the intimacy we might have with one another. It makes us tired. It's exhausting trying to constantly perform for others, saying and doing all the right things, dropping all the right facts about yourself so that you measure up to how you think people want you to behave. Your denial of your shortcomings is a full-time job and leaves little time and space for you to enjoy the love Jesus has for sinners. And fourthly, it makes us cold and joyless. You see, sinners get to run to Jesus and enjoy and experience his rich love and grace. Religious people are so busy performing that they lose all their joy. They don't get to experience the Father's love, the Spirit's presence or comfort, or the leading of Jesus, who's the best older brother in the entire world. Now, let's not stop with this question. To experience godly sorrow, we we need to ask ourselves another question. How does our sin of being religious not only affect us, but affect our family and our friends? Instead of being loving and compassionate, encouraging like Jesus, we become demanding and judging and hard to be around, and our families and friends feel pressure to perform in the time of trouble. Instead of pointing them to Jesus who loves them and forgives them of their sin, you point them to the law, and you subtly express your frustrations and your disappointments with them so that they have to try harder. Instead of modeling a life of joy and grace and love, you put your weight on their back, to be like you. And they too become less familiar with the gospel only to taste the cruel religion or their cruel new master religion. And finally, instead of getting their daily encouragement from him, they need to move forward in life in the power of Jesus. They walk around in cold-hearted funk without the daily gracious encouragement they need to live in the gospel. Now, as much as we want to stop here, I think there's one more question we need to ask ourselves to experience godly sorrow. We must ask ourselves, how does the sin of religion affect our city, the community in which we live? Instead of being beautiful pictures of humility and brokenness, experiencing a rich and satisfying love of Jesus that shines like light, we portray Christianity as a religion of self-reliance and self-sufficient spirituality, where we obey rules, where we judge and condemn where we live out of hypocrisy. Now let's stop for a second. Imagine asking these questions, how does this sin harm me, my family, and my friends, and my city on a regular basis? What if we invited someone else to put us on the hot seat? And what if we asked him or her to help us to feel godly sorrow for whatever sins ail us the most? What would happen to you? I think what would happen to you is what happened to King David if you look in the scriptures. Over and over in the Psalms, you see him weep over his sin and express his sorrow to his God and enjoy his rich grace. I have to be honest with you. I'm horrendous at doing this for myself. 
but the rare times I've invited others into my life to help me feel godly sorrow for my sin, in each and every case, my life has dramatically changed, not only in repenting, but experiencing the power of Jesus in my soul. Uh, to, to illustrate this, I love to tell you a story. About seven years ago, my marriage had a profound movement where we just, Kim and I just moved so forward. It was a pivotal turning point in my life, and the funny thing is my wife doesn't even remember this conversation. But seven years ago, when I was a church planner in Chapel Hill, my wife, with tears in her eyes, sat me down in our den and looked at me straight in the eyes and says, I love you, I'm for you, but I'm no longer going to allow you to throw me under the bus of your sin of needing to be a great guy. She drew a little proverbial line in the sand and said, I'm here, I'm not leaving you, I'm for you, but you can't do this for me anymore. She was right. Although I still struggle with it, not to the degree I struggled with it seven years ago, I, I love to be a great guy. I will do everything and say everything I can so that others around me will think I'm a great guy. I'll try to be kind, I'll try to be a servant, I'll try to say whatever I need to, so at the end of the day, when people walk away from my sermon or my interaction with me, they'll go, man, Rue's a great guy. And so, if I get just enough affirmation that I'm a great guy, my head gets this big, and I'll just walk around like, you know, I am a great guy, and Jesus is lucky to have me on his team. (laughs) And then, who gets thrown under the bus? My wife. Because by design, God created my wife to show me my greatest sense. She serves as a mirror, constantly reflecting back to me my self-sufficiency, my pride, my religion. And so when my wife and I would have discord, because she tends to get a little bit more emotional than I do, I would constantly shift the weight and the brunt of our problems under her. And for some reason, for about, I don't know, four or five years, she took it. She was more than happy to take most of the blame for our marital problems, and darn it, I'm a good guy. And so it's clearly it wasn't my fault that we're having these marital problems. But by God's grace and my wife's courage, She stood up to me and said, no, I love you. I'm for you. I need you to lead me. I need you to love me. I need you to encourage me. But you're not a great guy. And she's right. I'm not a great guy. I'm a selfish, arrogant man that threw his wife under the bus for years. That's who I am. That's who I was. And I was killing my wife all to feel righteous and loved and rescued. So one of the best things happened to me when my wife threw that line on the ground is I was like, all right, what am I going to do? So I started calling guys I knew and I respected and I trusted. Men my age, men younger than me, men older than me. I wanted a 360 evaluation on this. And I said, do I do this? Do I have the sin of being a good guy? And all of them were like, yes. <laughs> yes, you do. I was like, oh, no. And I was like, I don't know how to do this stuff. Can you help me to see the sin in my life? And conversation after conversation after conversation they, they put me on the hot seat, and they wouldn't let me off the hot seat until I started connecting emotionally to the sin of my life and how it's damaging me, my wife, at that point my young son, and the church I pastored. It truly, literally changed my life. I went one from a person who preached the gospel to someone who preached the gospel and started practicing the gospel. I started being a sinner who needed Jesus every day. And I started realizing that the gospel was for me. And that was the best thing that happened to me. Like Paul, I'd like to invite you to feel godly sorrow. That you might experience grand repentance in your life. This week, let me encourage you to invite your gospel community into your sin. So that you may experience godly sorrow. Put yourself on the hot seat. Allow them to ask questions of you 
and follow-up questions that go with them until they see you experience deep sorrow for your sin. And then experience the love of God. Because as you experience sorrow, it will be their privilege and honor to preach the gospel to you. And to remind you who you are in Christ. And remind you of what you have in Christ. And know that that sin that you're grieving in that moment has been wiped away. Has been provided for. Has been put on Jesus. And all that defines you in that moment, as horrified you are, is the righteousness of Jesus. Look, we see now that the purpose of godly sorrow is repentance. Now let's turn our attention to the product of sorrow. When you look at verse 11, verse 11 contains seven products of repentance, of godly sorrow in our life. And I want us to quickly go through all seven. The first thing we see godly sorrow produces in us is earnestness. Again, look at verse 11. For we see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. See, sorrow creates sincerity, diligence, a careful shunning of all temptations. Instead of being callous to your sin, as we often are, we, can't do it. we do everything we can to avoid that sin because we recognize that sin has become our enemy. So we carefully watch over our heart. Do you see this earnestness in your life? If not, you might want to give godly sorrow a try. The second thing we see in this passage is that we see godly sorrow produces eagerness. Again, verse 11. But also what eagerness to clear yourself. Instead of being quick to avoid and deny and excuse our sin, which is our regular patterns, sorrow makes us quick to take ownership of our sin. There's this new readiness to make amends. The Greek word here is apology. You will not let it fester in your conscience. Rather, you have to take hold of it and take it Christ as fast as you can. Because you know there is one who is quick to forgive you. You know there is one who is quick to heal you. And you can't wait to take that burden and that sin to him. Do you see that eagerness in your life? If not, you might want to give godly sorrow a try. The third thing you see in this passage is that godly sorrow produces indignation. Instead of being friends and allies with our sin, we see them in their true light. There's a repulsion to our former practices. There's a real hatred for the sin in your life. Why? Because you see how it's harmed you. You've tasted how it's damaged your family. You can see how it's shattering your community and your city and your church. And you want nothing more to do with this. But you hate this sin now because it's not your friend. Because it lives to destroy you. And you're tasting that. Do you see indignation towards sin in your life? If not, you may want to give godly sorrow a try. The fourth thing we see is godly sorrow produces fear. Not a fear where there's nothing you can do against your sin, but a fear, a trembling, that this sin could destroy you. You begin to see that the sin has the power to, take, to make the multicolored, beautiful 3D love of Jesus dull and gray and one-dimensional. So instead of being ho-hum about our sin, we grow in alarm over the forces that wish to end us. Do you see this fear or alarm of sin in your life? If not, you may want to give godly sorrow a try. The fifth thing we see in this passage is godly sorrow produces a longing. Instead of having a heart so easily satisfied with just mere glimpses and tastes of the love of God, we're filled with a deep desire for the righteous ways of Jesus. 
We crave freedom from sin. We yearn to be with Christ. We ache to feel His presence. We hunger to have His ways in our life. We thirst for His Spirit's presence. Nothing else will satisfy. Do you see longing in your life? You may want to give godly sorrow a try. The sixth thing we see is godly sorrow produces a zeal. We're no longer content with a little bit of progress in our fight with any sin. We have a new zeal, a deep concern, concern to see real repentance in our lives. We have a new power to persist, persist in godly sorrow no matter what the discouragement and opposition, which sadly is usually well-intentioned friends who want us to make us feel better. And this is not a weird frenzy, this zeal, but a low-grade fervor until the work of God is complete. Do you see zeal in your life? If not, you may want to give godly sorrow a try. The seventh and final thing we see is godly sorrow produces a commitment to change. Look at verse 11, the very end. What punishment? At every point you've produced yourself innocent in this matter. What punishment is translated in older translations as readiness to see justice done? It's a commitment to doing what is right. It's a commitment to making things right. See, once you've seen the error of your of your ways, you're bent on changing and make things right with Jesus and following in his patterns of righteousness. And you have to look no further than the Corinthian church. You can see his second letter to his first letter is like, wow, look what you guys have done. This is amazing. In every area, Paul found fault with them. They changed. They made a commitment to amend themselves and to walk in the patterns of Jesus. Not because they had to, but because they loved Jesus, their Savior. And as they experienced his grace, they wanted to move forward in that. Do you see a commitment to change in your life? If not, you may want to give godly sorrow a try. Now that we see the purpose of sorrow and the product of sorrow, how on earth do we get the power to experience godly sorrow? This Sunday we celebrate Palm Sunday. It's the day where Jesus entered into Jerusalem, and as he was on a donkey heading towards Jerusalem, his people broke out into worship and praise, and they're shouting out his name, and they're praising him as the king of the world, and it was right for them to do so. And he received that praise because it was fitting for his people to worship him as king. But he knew in days later they would be the same people yelling, crucify him. So at the heels of being rightly praised, Jesus draws near to Jerusalem. And when he gets a sight of the city and beheld it, he just broke down in tears and he wept over Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Why? Because he knew the impending doom of Jerusalem. He knew the Roman Empire would come and shatter that city and leave nothing in its wake. But this sorrow is a shadow of a greater sorrow that he would feel a few days later on the cross. The prophet Isaiah had this to say, Surely he has borne our grief and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He is put to grief. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. You see, there is a suffering a sorrow we experience now with most of our sins. There's also a sorrow we should experience for all our sins. And that sorrow, every bit of it was placed on Jesus, and he carries it for us. Imagine the emotional pain of one human being carrying the sorrow 
of all of God's people from all time, from all over the world, on one man. But Jesus did it willingly for us, to have us, to save us, to know us, to love us, to comfort us. But that sorrow was less than the other sorrow he experienced in the cross. For the first time, his loving Heavenly Father had to turn on him. The Father had to put him to grief, to make him an offering, to devour him, to make us pure, to crush him, to make us whole, to punish him, to clear us. Imagine all that emotional pain. To have the one you've known forever, who's always delighted in you, that always enjoyed you, the one you had perfect fellowship with, leave you, abandon you, turn his face on you, and curse you until there was nothing left of you. Jesus did that willingly for us, to have us, to have you, to cleanse you, to love you, to make you his, so that he would never lose you, that he would never forsake you, that he would have you, and he can make you just like himself. It's when you see this sorrow for you, it's when you see the sorrow that Jesus carried for you that you can gauge any sorrow for sin in your life because a greater sorrow has already been experienced for that sin. And then that gracious Savior who died for you and felt that sorrow lives in you now to meet you in your sorrow over your sin to lead you to holistic repentance that you may feast and enjoy and relish and drown in his love. And find your home nowhere else. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, your people, don't know how to grieve over our sin. We don't like emotional pain, and we don't like to experience emotional pain over our sin. And what we don't see on the surface of that, Father, is we abandon your cross when we don't engage our sin. Father, would you give us the grace to be a people that looks at the sin that they commit and engages in appropriate grief and sorrow and emotional pain and regret over that sin that you might meet us in that sorrow and produce beautiful repentance in our life. We long to taste you more, to experience you more, and have a heart full of you that we can't help but worship you and enjoy you and find our home in you and give you the praise that you deserve. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, make us a new kind of people. A people that's rich in emotional pain, but it's even richer in your love. A people that's quick to take ownership of their sin and feel sorrow for it, not for sorrow's sake, but for repentance sake, not for repentance sake, but for your glory's sake. That we may be free from the sin in our life and behold you and enjoy you and give you glory and praise that others might look upon us, not think we're great, but think you're marvelous and want to experience sorrow too, that they might experience the beauty and the depths and the riches of your grace. Lord, if you do this for us, we promise to give you all the credit and glory and to relish you that much more. We pray this in your blessed name, Jesus. Amen.